I personally know several self-professed Christians, leaders who from every indication are liberal Democrats first and Christians second. The literature they prize, the way they consistently interpret culture, reveals that they read the Bible through a liberal lens. The agenda of the political left is primary, and God's truth is secondary. But it's also troubling to see Christians who are conservative Republicans first, and Christians second. The poll that runs up their backs and gives them stability is a conservative political theory. A biblically informed worldview is assigned a supportive role. At places, the Bible happily supports what they believe and what they hold. At other places, it's largely ignored. Will you agree with me? Perhaps not, but I trust you will. As born-again followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to be Christians first. Everything else is second. Everything else is filtered by and calibrated to God's revealed Word. When Jesus is truly your Lord, when you genuinely perceive that you are an alien pilgrim whose citizenship is in heaven, then you should labor to see everything through the lens of the Gospel and rejoice to orient your worldview to that kingdom. No kingdom on this earth. And when you do that, when you become by God's grace a Gospel-oriented, kingdom-seeking and serving believer first, then there are times you might lean left. There are times you might lean right. And I think most times, there just simply won't be any categories for what you think and how you see this world. We find a compelling exhibit of this reality in the personal letter that the Apostle Paul writes to Philemon. I invite you to turn to that letter in your Bibles. Philemon was a faithful partner in the Gospel. And it's easy to lose this book, by the way. So it comes right before Hebrews. You'll find it there. Uh, And after all the the T's, the Timothys and Titus, um, Thessalonians, you find Philemon there right before Hebrews. And as we find this letter of the Apostle uh, to Philemon, we find here such an exhibit of otherworldly thinking. And rather than weave the historical setting into our reading of the letter, let me take some time here to set the context So perhaps before you even set your eyes on the text, to try to get the setting historically. The Apostle Paul, most of us will know very well. Jewish man grew up in a privileged home, received the finest education in Israel, and became an ardent proponent of the Jewish faith. Nothing would stop Paul right up until the moment that Christ did. And Jesus saved him out of his works-based religiosity And now the Apostle is a fervent evangelist for Jesus Christ. He's given his life to spread the good news of Christ crucified and risen. And with all of those efforts, he's found himself now in prison, most likely in Rome. Philemon, the recipient of the letter, a Gentile from the Lycus Valley. Jew, Gentile. 
He's living west coast of modern-day Turkey across the Aegean Sea. He was a convert of Paul's ministry, almost certainly as Paul was stationed at Ephesus. And it is almost certain also that Philemon was a leader at the church of Colossae. He had to be a leader in one sense, in that the church met in his home. Now, there's possibilities that some of these facts might not be accurate, but we're, we're quite likely, most of them are quite likely. Whatever the case, Paul loved Philemon and saw him to be a faithful partner in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were good friends on some level. There's a third person here in this story, another player, and that's Onesimus. Onesimus was Philemon's slave who escaped from his master, probably taking some of Philemon's wealth with him to fund his way, we assume, to Rome. It was not uncommon for slaves to escape their masters in that day, and typically what they would do is become robbers and become thugs that live in a populated city where they would get lost in the subculture, often joining together in sort of ancient gangs. They'd live out their life in the city and try to make a living that way, never wanting to be caught because the prosecution could be really ugly. In the providence of God, oh, I'd love to tell you this story, but we don't have it. We'll have to wait. But in the providence of God, somehow Onesimus found the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul began to talk to Onesimus and tell him that we are all slaves of sin. And that God sent His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to this earth to bear the penalty of our sin. And He rose from the dead. And I am a witness of His resurrection power in my own life. He offers this gift of salvation to all who will receive it in faith. And Onesimus, the slave, was redeemed. Redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. He responded in faith to that message. Now there's other players in this whole account, but I'll mention just Tychicus. The Apostle Paul in prison, with some liberalities there in in Roman prison, he sends Tychicus with Onesimus, the escaped slave, and this letter. And also the letter to the Colossian church. And entrust Tychicus to get everything where it belongs. As they journey east and back to where Philemon lives. Now Roman culture also needs to be understood here as we put these players together. The institution of slavery in the Roman world was far more diverse than what we have in our minds with our experience in American culture. At any rate, runaway slaves were to be returned to their masters who were then free to punish the slave however they thought best. In fact, the institution of slavery depended upon the owner making an example out of escaped slaves. Much like our society might today attempt to make an example out of drug dealers. You didn't go soft on a runaway slave because it wasn't just about you and your slave. It was about the culture and its relationship with all the slaves. 
So the social and economic order of the day, could I say it, the conservative position that almost everyone expected masters to uphold demanded that Philemon severely punish Onesimus. It would have been normal for Philemon to brand the letter F onto Onesimus's forehead. F for the Latin fugitivus, fugitive. And forever after, everyone would know that Onesimus was one of those people. A slave that would betray his calling in life and his master and run away to become a thug in some city or to live remotely where no one could find him. In an empire program to conserve the institution of slavery, Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon with this letter. It starts with a greeting. Verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. We don't know who Aphia and Archippus were. We perhaps uh, relatives, co-workers in the church. We see simply that there is a church in his home. And Paul then extends grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Two Christian brothers connecting here through this letter. Everything hinges on perspective, doesn't it? You notice how Paul speaks of himself. I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Well, he was a prisoner of Rome, wasn't he? When you have confidence in the sovereign purposes of God, you're a prisoner of Christ and Christ alone, and that's good. We know nothing again about some of these people that are mentioned, or these two that are mentioned here, but that church in your house, remembering there are no church buildings in this day. There were exceptions, but the vast majority of local churches met in someone's home. These homes, these private homes, were made available by courageous and generous believers. It's no easy undertaking to have an assembly in your home every Lord's Day. That's Philemon, and that's his commitment to the cause of Christ to take on the danger, to take on the effort of that, and the continual scrutiny of others and all that's involved, the church met in his home. Willing to serve the cause of Christ, giving of himself to build up believers. To this man, Paul writes, we enter then at verse 4 through verse 7, a word of prayerful commendation. Paul now is going to speak about who he, how he sees Philemon. And he gives thanks to God for what he sees in this man's life. Verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Why does Paul give thanks? The reason, verse 5, because. I give thanks because, verse 5, I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Paul praises God because Philemon is faithful to God and faithful to God's people. I think that's how he would take that. And I pray, he says, verse 6, 
that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. The notoriously difficult verse to translate out of the original text. I'll spare you the details. But I don't think the idea here is that you will labor fervently and then gain a knowledge of Christ through your labors. But rather, I think the idea is something along these lines. I pray that your participation as a man of faith in partnership with other believers will result in zealous, active service of others that is driven by the knowledge of Christ's indwelling glory. So you know of Christ's indwelling glory. May that lead you to fervently serve others in your knowledge of the Lord. We have here in our English text, for the full knowledge, as if that's to be a result. But the, the Greek text is the preposition en, or our English word in. So it is in a full knowledge of the Lord that this effort and this zealous work is to flow. 4 verse 7, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Philemon's life refreshed that of others. His life then reflects his Savior who said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And what did he say? I will give you rest. Same Greek word. Rest. Refreshment. To put you at peace. To put you at rest. This is the kind of work that Philemon did and Paul rejoices in it. Now as we think of the theology of this letter, I I trust this has, has been standing out to you as we've looked at it to this point. It's vital to note that everything that Paul says hinges on the grace of God operating in Philemon's life. As we look at the psychology of the letter, what's he doing? He starts with commendation, greeting, then commendation, and he has a request to make. He's got some things to fill him in on when it comes to Onesimus, his escaped slave. And a cynic might step forward and go, I see what's coming here, he's buttering him up. He's telling him all the things he wants to hear about himself so that he can now impose his will upon him and control him. Wow, is that a ridiculous way to read this letter? Is this blind? Paul is not puffing Philemon's ego in order to becloud his judgment and to press him into, his, into fulfilling what Paul wants him to do. This is not psychological manipulation. Rather, Philemon's life is a testament to the saving grace of Christ. And Paul can only rejoice in that reality. He rightly commends and encourages Philemon because of what God is doing in the man's life. Why does he commend him? What did verse 6 say? Because of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Who put that in us? God in His saving grace puts this joy in us, puts this goodness in us by His saving and sovereign purposes. And Paul says, I rejoice to see that happening in your life. There was a day when you were blinded and in darkness and as lost as the devil himself, but God has put something in you. And I thank Him. When Jesus saves a sinner from his sin and from God's wrath, He puts good in that believer's heart which brings glory to Christ as Redeemer. 
So Paul thanks, hear it, Paul thanks God for Philemon. He's not thanking Philemon for Philemon. And I think as we think on that, really the highest commendation a believer in Christ can receive in this world is not when people praise you. It's when they praise God for the fruit He is obviously producing in your life. That's what Paul's doing here. God is at work in you, Philemon. If He wasn't, we'd have nothing to talk about. But we've got a lot to talk about. A radical request now follows at verse 8. Accordingly, on the basis of all that Christ has done in your life and the testimony that you have as a refresher of people, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Listen, says Paul, I'm not going to command you to do what I want. Rather, I appeal to the love of God that He's put in your heart. He says, an old man who's imprisoned. In our western current way of thinking that would seem to elicit pity but in that context in that day an old man who's imprisoned for righteousness elicits respect hear what i'm saying to you brother draw upon the love that is in your heart i'm appealing to you i stand as advocate for your escaped slave onesimus It'd be great to know the details. We just don't. We'll have to hear a lot about this story in eternity, I think. But did, did, did he, had he seen Onesimus when he reads the letter? Is he shocked by the name? How did they do this? How did they present this? I don't know, but certainly as he brings the letter now to bear upon Onesimus, it's clear to Philemon that he's going to have to really search his heart. I became his father. Paul says. Through some mind-numbing turns of events, this slave had found his way to Paul and had found his way through Paul to Christ as his Savior. You've got to understand, from Philemon's perspective, when we look at the accounts of the day, slaves were costly. There's, there's evidences of what was paid for a slave, and it was significant. There was much financial investment in it. On top of that, not only did Onesimus harm Philemon financially that way, but as I mentioned again, he undoubtedly had taken something from him, as is, seems to be subtly indicated as we continue on in the text. But this is the man that Philemon's considering. And now he learns that Paul has led him to Christ. Paul says parenthetically, verse 11, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to me, to you and to me. There's a play on words there because Onesimus means profitable or useful. 
So Paul's saying, Philemon, I realize Mr. Useful has proven downright unuseful, but now he's useful to both of us. Everything has changed. Paul does not need to spell out to Philemon that when a sinner places faith in Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sin, everything changes. Thieves become givers. The sensual becomes spiritual. Liars begin to proclaim the truth. Complainers learn to rejoice. The self-centered begin to pour out their lives in love toward others. This man has been redeemed as a slave to sin. He's now useful. I'm not sending you your slave as much as I'm sending you my dear friend who's helping me in the spread of the gospel. Verse 12, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. So what's Paul saying there? I, I really don't want to send him back. I really wish you had freely sent him to me and then I could keep him because he's been very helpful in the work that we're doing here. But, verse 14, I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. Clear, isn't it? I want it to come from your heart, not my pressure. He really keeps putting the screws down when he says, verse 15, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Perhaps, Paul does not presume to speak for God, But he says, in essence, how can we miss this, Philemon? How can we not see that God has sovereignly used Onesimus' escape from you, his earthly master, to draw him to his Lord and Savior, his heavenly master? How can we miss what God's doing here? Think about it, Philemon. Onesimus' temporary separation has resulted in a magnificent union. You lost a slave. You're receiving back a brother. With that insight, the gospel detonates on the social landscape of that day with atomic force. You have received back a man who has been transformed. And your relationship to him will never be the same again. You now both have the same master. He's a brother. What Paul has just said radically diverges from a conservative stance in Roman culture. And it opens a window into how relationships work in God's kingdom. Paul here deals a death blow to slavery. He severs the main artery of thought that feeds the concept of human slavery. That some classes of people are more important innately. They are better than other classes of people. 
Paul destroys that with one slice of the sword here. What God has done changes this relationship down here on the carpet. You have a different relationship with this man. The status of slave and the status of master are transcended by the status of Christian brother. Paul is not attempting to overturn the institution of slavery. It's not his attempt here. If he were, he would simply chide Philemon for having a slave. What's wrong with you? Don't you understand this? It's not what he says at all. Paul is looking much higher than that. His focus is not social and cultural, it's spiritual. In the household of Christ, we are all brothers and sisters. And that work of God in this world transcends what the culture dictates in that situation. Following the Civil War, Confederate General Robert E. Lee visited a church in Washington, D.C. He could have come a bitter man, if you know the story. His place had been confiscated in Washington. He went to church, and during the communion service, as was custom in many churches and continues to be, he walked to the front and he kneeled down there at the front of the church, and next to him was a Negro man. An onlooker asked Lee later how he could do that, given that Lee had on some level fought in support of slavery. But Lee knew his Bible, and he replied with these words, My friend, all ground is level beneath the cross. All ground is level beneath the cross. A transcendent work of God that overwhelms and overshadows what people do to muck up their world in a sinful, fallen society. Lee had read, certainly, Galatians 3 and verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's a radical proposition. And there's only one way that Philemon's going to respond at all, and that is if he thinks in an otherworldly manner. If the gospel really filters through everything that he thinks and how he acts and how he relates to other people, Paul, having laid out this request, now moves at verse 17 to sort of, if I could put it this way, settle up accounts. And he says, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. It's like he's signing the contract in a sense. I will repay it. Again, subtly, he doesn't mention that Onesimus had stolen anything, but I think it's very likely that he had with this statement. If he owes you anything, 
guarantee Onesimus owed Philemon a lot. At least in the structures of that time. I will repay his debt. There simply are no categories for Paul's thinking here. None. On this issue, he is way left of the most liberal position regarding slaves in the society in which he finds himself. What he is suggesting would be offensive to many, almost revolutionary, and so again we ask the question, what is driving the apostle to think this way? When you know, and I I think this is the trail, when you know that Jesus Christ substituted Himself to die in your place for your sin, when you come to believe that the righteousness of Jesus has been credited to your account through no goodness of your own, when you're overwhelmed with the joy of receiving Christ's own standing before God through the gracious imputation of His righteousness, I mean, you don't, you don't have any other options. You're going to read the world differently. Everything in your life will be seen in a radically different way because of what Christ has done for you. When your life has been rescued by the gospel, it makes perfect sense to say, receive that despised outcast as if he were me and reckon to his account my standing before you it synchronizes beautifully with who philemon was and had become in christ no categories in the culture but the perfect category of the gospel in his heart Paul is simply mirroring Christ's love for him as he stands in the place of Onesimus here as his advocate. And here's the wonder of it all, this relationship that Philemon had with God through Christ and that Paul had with God through Christ is an offer that the Lord continues to extend today. This only reason this world's going on and it's the only reason we have human government right now is the mercy of God to extend continuing offers of grace to sinners. What we need to come to see, as these men did, is that we are all slaves to sin by nature. But that in His mercy, God sent Jesus Christ to take my place as a sinner on the cross, to pay the penalty of my sin, to give me His righteous standing as a free gift. So that my standing before God is Christ standing. Not because I went to the right church. Not because I was born into the right family. Not because I paid for it. And certainly not because I earned it by my good works. There's only one reason. Jesus won that for me. And He gives me that free gift as I receive it. And So I say to you, if you've not received that gracious gift of God, to have the standing of Jesus before Him, knowing that your sins are forgiven, receive it. It's a gift. He extends it. Reach for it and take it. By His grace. But there's a warning. You're never going to see life in the same way again. Never. But if you say... I don't have that life. 
but you know what? Maybe that wouldn't be such a bad thing. Keep walking. Keep reaching. When He changes our worldview by His gracious gift of salvation, we begin to live. Receive it. And you know what? Paul continues, verse 19, I'm not going to say anything about you owing me your own self. I mean, he's, he's merciless here on the guy, isn't he? You owe me something. In fact, verse 20, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. He's just telling him outright, I want you to give me something. Remember, you owe me your life. So here's what I want from you. Refresh my heart in Christ. Again, he places himself in Onesimus' place. By treating him with love, you're going to refresh my heart. I want to see the Gospel honored and glorified here in the relationship that the two of you have. Will you do that? And will you once again then refresh my heart as you've refreshed so many others? Verse 7. This is an appeal, as one commentator puts it, of a brother to a brother for a brother. And then a final expression of confidence comes in verse 21. Confident of your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. What does that mean? Send Onesimus back to me? Perhaps even free him from slavery. I don't know. I just think you'll do more than I'm saying. And I look forward to it. Because in Christ, you're a man who refreshes hearts. Do something. Do something more than I'm asking. But what Paul says next is almost humorous. And it certainly puts a long, gnarly nail in the coffin of any lingering temptation in Philemon's heart to side with his culture and really come down hard on Onesimus. Paul, he doesn't give up. He says, at the same time, verse 22, prepare a guest room for me. For I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. This is, I mean, you've got to see the humor in this. He's in prison. He can't book a room in Philemon's hotel. It, in Rome, they get to you when they get to you. He's not serving a two-year sentence. Now, you were there to be dealt with, or you, you, you were gone. And he has no idea how long the Roman authorities will leave him rot in prison. He's rotted in prison before because Roman authorities just decided they didn't have time to deal with him. He's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to be coming by soon. I want you to prepare a room for me. He's a man that believes in prayer. Philemon is a man that believes in prayer, and it is certainly a possibility that pretty soon he's going to be delivered from prison. I believe as we construct the history that he was, maybe he actually showed up at Philemon's place, but what Philemon knows is the Apostle Paul could come any day and physically, personally witness what I've done to Onesimus. From way over here, a man tattooed on the forehead with an F for fugitive or way over here 
a man who I have now received into my friendship and partnership as a brother in the spread of the gospel of Christ? What will it be? What if Paul comes? And certainly Philemon is thinking far more deeply than that and asking, what does God think? How should I respond? Well, Paul has some people with him, and so in final greetings says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. I, I think it's, it's very unlikely that he's sending greetings from them and they have no idea what this letter's about. Undoubtedly, there is here Christian accountability. I've got my guys with me here. I may be showing up at your house soon. Please do. Please do what I'm asking you to do. Because I love this man. He's been redeemed by Christ. And because I love you. Well, we cannot miss in this spirit-inspired correspondence is the profoundly countercultural reasoning of Paul in defense of a fugitive slave, Onesimus. And what we must grasp here is how Paul's reasoning is so firmly rooted in the fertile soil of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul thinks as he thinks, he contends and argues and labors from the inspirational foundation of the liberating grace of Jesus the Messiah, crucified, risen, reigning, and coming again. That's first over everything else. He really doesn't care what the neighbors think. He really doesn't care where this is going to place Philemon on the political seen in his neighborhood. What he cares about is Jesus Christ and His saving gospel. So let's let those pieces just come up before our mind once again. The lens through which he sees this world is number one, substitution. Receive Him as you would receive me. I'll stand in His place. Number two is redemption, imputation. Charge to my account whatever wrong He's caused to you. Thirdly, regeneration, new birth. Once useless, Onesimus is now useful, a beloved brother. Number four, reconciliation. Paul stands in the alienation gap between Onesimus and Philemon and he works and argues as Onesimus' advocate presenting his case. And making it all work because of what he's willing to provide. And number five, sacrificial love. The theme pulsates through the letter. When the love of God finds you, it radically changes all of your relationships. And I wonder, as we consider that letter, is this how you think? Is this how I think? It's a convicting question. Do we push the limits of a world by our transformed thinking as we zealously pursue relationships radically reordered by the gospel of Christ? Is His love 
His willingness to stand in our place and to be the reconciler and the advocate, is that how we do life? Is that how we see the relationships around us? Is that the message we send to a world that is alienated from God and needs His reconciling grace? Do they see that displayed in us? In his autobiography, Hindu leader Mahatma Gandhi claims that in his early days as an intellectual, he read through the Gospels and he had an aha moment. He's living in India in a caste system where there is divisions among people. There's the people who have it and the people who don't. There's the people at the top of the heap and the people at the bottom of the pile. And he knew that that was harmful to his society. And he saw in the teachings of Jesus, here it is. How all people can be seen as standing on level ground before God. And so he went to church. His first mistake. In the culture of India at that time, he walked into a church where the usher told him he needed to find another place because he didn't fit in here. He didn't have the standing to come into this assembly of Christians. And in his own words, Gandhi said, listen, if there's a caste system in the Christian church, I might as well just remain a Hindu. What we need to be genuine followers of Jesus Christ is a relentless ordering of our worldview by God's agenda. Sometimes that may put us on the conservative side of issues. And there may be some hard licks to take as we stand on those conservative issues because they're biblical. Sometimes that will position us against the conservative view. And I'm not thinking here so much 2012 America. But in the history of humanity, and even in the history of our own nation, we think broader than just our own little day. There are times when that will put us against the conservative position. Slavery itself, for instance, in not too long ago in this nation, the conservative view was that racial segregation was necessary for the stability of American society and vast numbers of professed Christians dutifully upheld that conservative conviction. It's difficult for us to get our minds around it in our setting, in our day, and we're glad that day's long past in many respects. But what we need to understand is that there are people that are fearful that thinking a certain way will loosen things up and will destroy the status quo which we are defending. There are times it puts us on the left and times it puts us on the right and sometimes conservative, sometimes liberal, and sometimes there's no categories at all. They just don't exist in this world. We will position ourselves against all worldly wisdom when it comes to dealing with people. 
This isn't a political thing. It's not a position on this issue or that issue socially, but it's the idea that we simply deal with relationships in a radically different way. What do you do when your brother wrongs you? When someone sins against you? When someone just irritates you? The world teaches retaliation, avoidance, depression, hatred, ostracism, something along these lines. That's what's natural. The Gospel comes in and we see life through the lens of reconciliation and love and forgiveness. It should radically change everything. The world's view of suffering is is that it is an intolerable injustice with no value at all. It's simply loss. But as we see the world from the perspective of a sovereign God who has displayed His love to us in Jesus Christ, there is no loss. Even our suffering and our trials are meant to build our faith, to transform us into the likeness of Christ. We can't be touched for wrong, ultimately. There certainly are no categories in this world for the greater family identity that binds believers together and helps us overcome the diverse categories that separate people in this world. For us, the Gospel transforms all relationships. For us, the Gospel moves us to live above the self-seeking, self-protective, dull-hearted, insensitive, uncompassionate, vengeful, cliquish ways of this world. It teaches us to value, value reconciliation, restoration, and unity in Christ. It teaches us to live a life that refreshes others as we have been forever refreshed by the saving grace of Christ. So the question to us, do the relationships of our lives reflect a thorough orientation to the gospel-centered worldview that we find here? Is your thinking so ordered, or are you more steered by the expectations of your culture? Have you found the refreshing rest that comes in trusting the sacrificial, reconciling, redemptive work of Jesus Christ? And is that gospel message reflected in the way that you think about life and the way that you relate to people in your home, in your church, in your neighborhood, at work, at school, at play? Does the gospel permeate our relationships? And do others see it? To say it simply, are you a Christian first or second? Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we realize, I trust humbly, that we can't even answer these questions with omniscience, perhaps not even with full accuracy. I pray that you'll remove the lie from our hearts. I pray that you will transform our relationships in light of your reconciling grace to us in Christ. We ask that our church would be changed, that our individual families and personal lives would be changed.
And we plead in behalf of anyone who knows not Christ as Savior that you draw them to that reconciling grace today. We pray that even among us as a church here that you'd save a slave today. A slave of sin, liberated from its bondage and its punishment. Father, we stop as words fail us to simply say, Thank you. Thank you for the reconciling power of our Savior. Change us in the light of who he is and what he's done. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.